I want to review just a couple of things before I get into today's text. The first thing is, is that this text follows two statements in Romans that are really important and continue to do this. The first one is, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That one. We are not ashamed of the gospel. And second, the righteous have life in and through faithful living. Faithful living to what God calls us to do. Prior to that, I've also taught one biblical principle that I need to remind you, that the Bible neither justifies any human behavior nor provides a yardstick for us to judge others with. Remember that the Bible doesn't justify people. That simply is that the Bible justifies God's action in the world, and it doesn't provide us a spot where we get to become judge, jury, or executioner of any particular stigmatized sin. That being said, I'm going to go right now into what is probably one of the most inflammatory texts of the era. And so I want to make sure that we have that in that the that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and that faithful living is found for the righteous finds life in and through faithful living. So let me ask you this. How many of you have ever asked your parents or guardians or whoever if you could do something because everybody was doing it. Okay, and if you did, you probably got this response. If everybody was jumping off a cliff, would you do that too? Yes? Yes, is that the case? Okay, so we all had the same parent or guardian response on that story. Following the crowd has never been a good or biblically approved idea or methodology. Instead, the biblical story is that few find the way, and it's narrow because it's difficult to be done. So here it is. There are many ways to recognize stigmatized sins and all that stuff, but today we've got a list mainly as symptoms, and remember, Last week, we talked about the wrath of God and how it is at work in the world. But I also want to say that the main problem was that they had abandoned God and ideas of God and true understandings of God for an idolatry that then leads to other things. So here is the text. Stick with me or grab on to something nearby. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their heart desired As a result, they did vile, degrading things with each other's bodies. Or, as the text seems to provide some language, they used each other. Okay? This is is not necessarily about love, and and Paul is not talking about love, and, and the arguments are abounding there. They traded the truth of God for a lie. That's idolatry. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator in himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged with sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relationships with women, burned with lust for each other. 
Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of that sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Now, if you think that that's a chance for us to sit here and start picking apart what's going on in the world, remember that there's more to this list than just that. Since they thought it was foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that they should never have done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, myrtle, murder, myrtle, whatever that is, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. I want to make sure that you notice that right at the end of that list with greed and hate and murder and deception is gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. The way that I learned the verse was they're they're faithless, ruthless, and without mercy. That is, a, that is a desperate situation. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them. Symptoms. Symptoms of a greater problem. Idolatry is the sickness which then becomes a symptom of all sorts of wickedness and and evil and the use of people. Now, I want to make sure that as we do this, we get into this in, in, in an understanding that there are four major relationships that each of us has with the world. The first one is between me and God or us and God. That is a relationship that we have. Now, some people in the earth are not paying much attention to that relationship and because of that they either have a they either have a false view of God or they or they don't want anything to do with God but because that relationship is going wrong it it changes the way the other three relationships are okay so so let me tell you about the other three relationships the other three relationships are between me myself and I but if I don't get some things right in the God relationship, namely that he is Lord, forever worthy of worship is what Paul says in the text, may he be honored forever, right? If you don't have that part of thing right, then what's going to happen in your relationship with yourself? You're going to start to think that maybe you have the authority to do things in the universe that God has. And if you get that wrong, then sooner or later, you're going to start doing things, and these words are going to come out, to you, out of your mouth. I get to because. You don't, if you have a correct relationship with God, I don't expect that you're going to say that comment without at one point later on in the conversation going, oh, that was probably, I probably shouldn't have said that. Because correction comes. The second relationship after that of God and yourself is this one, you and other people. And if you don't get God correct in the relationship and you, and you figure out that you're not the Lord, but he is, then pretty soon you will start, just like 
Pharaoh did, decide that people are to be used. People are to be used. And so I, I just dare you to find a spot in your life where you've used somebody for your personal advancement or anything that, that you have just a fabulous relationship with them. Because in the using of them, you've degraded them to a spot where they are less than. You can see it in the way that we handle and talk to our waiters and waitresses in the world, where we treat them like they're dismissive or something like that. But Pharaoh used, used the people of Israel at the time essentially to say, that person is so many bricks, and they're going to make bricks. And so when the Israelites later on in the story start to say, we wish we could go back to Egypt, we had onions and leeks there. What they're really saying is, I'd really like to go back to a spot where I could be counted on as only so many bricks. And if I can't do them, then they whip me. Okay, but there's another relationship that we get wrong if we get this God thing wrong. If we don't get God as Lord of the universe and worthy of praise forever and ever, then our relationship with, our, with creation, with all of creation sort of suffers. We start to think, hey, you know, we're in charge of this, and we don't have to answer to God at all. And so we get to just destroy and use and blah, and on goes the story. So those are the things. But the first relationship, an understanding of who God is and that he is Lord is foundational to getting all of the other things right. And if we don't, sooner or later, I hate to say it, the symptoms become faithless, heartless, and without mercy. In some way, those are going to begin to take, begin to take root. But it's more than that. Also missed in this text is a discipline of grace and the divine permissiveness is right, so is is wrath, is wrath. Okay, so we get this wrong. Before I get too far into the text, I want to make sure that we understand this. And I'm going to read this just from one of the commentaries that I was doing because I thought he did a really good job. The point of the passage is not to find reasons to feel superior in condemnation of others. It is to repent of sin and pray desperately for forgiveness for ourselves and for society. It is the desire to make private sin the measure of public conduct that Paul is talking about here. The permissiveness we celebrate as a world come of age, or in other words, our ability to say, you know, we get to do all these things. The permissiveness that we celebrate as a world come of age, we now find to be nothing more than permission to fall deeper into sin. When God visits his wrath, he withdraws his restraining hand and lets his rebellious creation do what it pleases. In such a context, God's law is clearly a manifestation of his grace, not his judgment. Rather than a wrath-filled reaction to our human disorder, divine discipline is the measure of grace. In other words, 
when God comes alongside of us and starts to speak and, and correct us, then that is mercy. But we often think, no, 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 that's wrath. He's mad at me. No, if he's letting you go, that's a form of what I would call judicial hardening. He's talked to you. He's corrected you. You've walked through all the barriers and all the, and all the warning signs and all that. And he starts to say, fine, if you want that, you can have it. And all the prices. A society in which discipline is disappearing and in which anything is permitted is, in light of the passage we've just read, a society under the wrath of God not the society under the grace of God. Grace, it would appear, is God acting and exercising his lordship over creation in spite of creation's rebellion. Okay? This passage presents an opportunity to make clear what grace and sin are and to point to Paul as he described, point out that Paul, as he describes them, they tend to be just the opposite of what we normally think. This passage. How do we interpret this passage when it says that men and women dis- exchange the right or natural ways? It doesn't use any of the language that's sort of um, up for debate out of 1 Corinthians. In other words, this is a fairly clear passage. It actually just says what it says. And there are whole websites that say, no. Paul wasn't meaning this. He meant this other stuff. And those of you who are part of my Tuesday night Bible study know that I have this sort of litmus test for whether an argument holds water, and it goes like this. If I'm having to do too much gymnastics to make it say what I want it to say, I'm probably reading it wrong. So let me say that those that sort of say, no, this text over here doesn't really isn't really talking about LGBTQI community because they didn't really know it the way that we have it today and love is love and all that. That is a lot of gymnastics. I hate to say this. The point of the text, though, isn't, just in case you thought for a second that I was going to give us a right to condemn and do all that stuff, The biblical text, remember, never justifies human behavior. It justifies God's action in the world. And it talks to us about it. Now, one of the things I've talked about in my life is this one thing, is that I've had a number of orthopedic surgeries. I know some of you have had more, and some of you have had less and different experiences. But one of the things I had was a number of years ago, I had two hip surgeries that both failed. And I'm going to tell you about it mainly because I was having hip pain in such a way that the cartilage was coming apart inside my socket, and the surgery was essentially to go clean it out and give me a clean hip. But the problem wasn't that I had cartilage inside my socket. That was a symptom of a problem. So cleaning it out didn't fix the real problem. The real problem was, is that, as a later doctor sort of figured out, is that the blood supply, because of the number of cortisone shots that I'd had in my life, was dying to the top of the femur. 
And because of that, the cartilage was coming apart. So you could keep going in and vacuuming the rug and keeping it all clean, but you're leaving the door open and the dust storm is coming. Okay? The reason I bring this up is, is we were treating a symptom. We were treating a symptom, and that was my cartilage was coming apart. And it didn't matter how many times I had the surgery. Matter of fact, the conversation I had with the doctor between the first and second one was this. At the time, it was a fairly radical surgery, and only 1,100 of them had been done in Washington, and the doctor I had had done 1,000 of them. So only 100 other people had done that surgery in Washington at the time. He said, of the 1,100 people, six have had to have this surgery again. So as I went in to have that surgery... I don't need it. <laughs> As I went in to have the second surgery, he's, you know, now you're talking about being 6% or 0.6% of the population. Well, when that surgery only lasted and relieved the pain for six weeks, and I went back in to see him, he's going, okay, we're clearly treating a symptom, and this surgery is not going to work no matter what we do. Here's the problem. We've got this text that one side is discounting because they don't like what it says. By the way, the Bible says lots of things that we don't like. That's called correction and some other things. Sometimes it means that it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it means it's not for us. Sometimes it means all sorts of things. And I'm not going to interpret that today what I am going to say this morning is this. Just as we just sang a song this morning that said we have a story to tell, a story of love and light, taking that and turning it into a club to beat people with is not treating the problem, it's treating the symptom. The symptom is an incorrect view of the universe and its creator. That's the problem. And out of that idolatry comes all sorts of things, both malignant and difficult. The reason I, pointed this out, I point this out specifically is, how many of you in a list of murdering and thieving would have put gossip in the list? Anybody? Anybody would have, what are the five worst things that go on in the world? Would you have put gossip in there? Well, the reason gossip's in there uh, aside from the fact that it's confessing somebody else's sins, which the Bible doesn't really like us to do either, it's to use them to gossip, is to use people to either make us better or to be a judge. And by the way, the second we think we're judge of the universe, we're back to idolatry. We're back to a God that's less than God actually is. And so, what we're at here is I want to make sure that we get back into this spot of understanding that permissiveness is the absence of grace from God, and correction is the presence of grace from God. In other words, as a parent, you get this baby, and you teach it to do certain things, and you correct it because you love the baby. Now, does that mean that humans correct incorrectly sometimes? Yes, yeah, they sure do. But we do teach our kids to use the bathroom 
at certain areas, right? We potty train them, and that is a mercy to them. And I've said that over and over again. It is a mercy to them because if you go to school and you're not potty trained, you're not going to experience mercy from the other kids at the school, are you? No. But it's not just potty training. We teach them to speak right, and we teach them to do certain things, and sometimes we teach them to be polite. I hope we're doing that. Anyway, we do all that because, not because we want them only to be functional in society. We teach people to be polite because other people matter. See, what we're getting back to is that relationship between God and us and who we are and who we are in relation to ourselves and who we are in relation to other people and creation and how we do that stuff really matters. Instead of being faithless, heartless, and without mercy, I think one of the things that's in this text that's really strange is this desire to have whatever we can get away with privately, the standard of public behavior. And it's not just sexuality. It's not just sexuality. It's not just a stigmatized sin used as an example in here, and it's not just Paul taking the Stoic line, speaking to a former uh, a, uh, a populace that's having an argument between Stoicism, which means you live right and are good if you're in line with what's going on in nature, and the text seems to say that, or Epicureanism, which says God is the gods are over there and nothing we do, do matters. So eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And Epicureanism then ends in both nihilism or it ends in rampant everything. Epicure, Epicurus didn't really say that, but the Epicureans did. And Stoicism would say, none of that's right. You have to live in harmony. And, and by the way, there's you shouldn't be taking any pleasure in sin or in sex. You should just do it for procreation. And out of that view comes all of the people that become monks and all this stuff saying, no, we can't. We have to deny ourselves. So as Stoicism, neither of those positions are right in the same way as discarding the Bible is not right or using it non-biblically is not right. Today's text without doing a show of hands, how many of you are unhappy with me right now? Anybody? I see a no one, but I, I know because I've had conversations with some, some of you are unhappy because I have discredited one spot you're in and I've talked about the other, but we have a story to tell, a story of love and light, and the story is that God acts within creation in mercy and guidance for his people. And so the whole story comes at it like this, okay? The pivot point of Scripture described in Isaiah 40, which starts out with comfort, comfort my people, right? The pivot point of the Old Testament is, is that God's people's sins are forgiven, but that that God tolerates no replacement for himself. No replacement for himself. So when Jesus comes to the, to the thing and says, what are, the, what are the commandments, Lord? He says, there are really two that everything hinges upon. 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, these relationships that I'm talking about matter. The human story, as the Bible goes like this, God's creation reaches sort of a climax with Adam and Eve. And they're in the garden. And then suddenly, when they take control, something happens. Sin happens. Unless you think that's sort of the thing during the Exodus, that sort of culminates right at the giving of the Ten Commandments, which Bev read today. Right as the Ten Commandments are being given, what are they doing? They're worshiping a calf, a false idea of who God is. Jericho, just as the people come in there and and Jericho, the big citadel guarding the land, is destroyed, they get into the land, and what what do they do in the judges? Everything that's right in their own eyes. Let's say this. We want a king. We want to be just like the other nations, and God gives them a king, and it reaches its climax in David and Solomon. especially the Davidic throne, right? We call it that, the throne of David. And right at that point, what does he do? Bathsheba. The human story is that when we get these relationships wrong, we need rescue or that we've gone into some form of exile. And I'm going to say that the biblical story of exile is not geographic. Biblical story of Exile is separation from God, and any return out of exile means restoration for God's people and forgiveness of his sins. Thank you, Zita. I don't need it. It's fine. (laughs) The restoration of sins. So what should we do? What should we do given this text? Pray for our country. Pray that God will work in our country and will give us the mercy and grace that we have to present and to talk to people about who God is and what he has for them, and that he will guide them and forgive them and set that restoration apart, that we we can come out of the exile of sin in our own lives and come in to a new kingdom of his grace and mercy. That's what we ought to be doing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning as we come as we come to you recognizing that nobody nobody but nobody can make it without kneeling at the cross that we don't come out of the exile of both our bad understandings of who God is and whether we even devolved down into spots where we were faithless and heartless and with no mercy. Help us not be that people, Lord. Help us, Lord, be a people of mercy and grace and present a story of light and love to the nations a story where God acts, where you, Lord, act in creation. Help us present that as people who have received your mercy and your correction, Lord. In your precious name, amen.